This evening we're going to consider the word of the Lord as we find it in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bibles, but it's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So it's after Ezekiel. This is the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up on the plain of Dura and, uh, and as a consequence being thrown into a fiery furnace. And when King Nebuchadnezzar sees not three people in the fiery furnace but four, he realizes that the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, is there with them And so he makes this confession, and we see it in the last few verses of the chapter where he announces that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut in pieces in their houses, turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Now this was actually the second acknowledgement of the God of Israel that Nebuchadnezzar made. He made a similar acknowledgement in uh, chapter 2, and we see it at the end of chapter 2, after Daniel had interpreted his dream, that dream, you know, of the image of the head of gold and bronze and feet of iron, the four kingdoms. And King Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel interpreted this dream, fell before Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then he uh, placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him, and, uh, and Daniel then requested that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be made officials in the province of Babylon, which was, of course, the the capital province of the empire. Daniel chapter 3, now beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard 
the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to deliver you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and asked his advisors, Wasn't it three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, 
nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this, in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Congregation, beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was much younger, occasionally ministers that I heard as a child would use this word antithesis in their sermons. Well, I didn't know what the word antithesis meant. Actually, I didn't know until I think I was a freshman in college. What is antithesis all about? Well, antithesis really means the opposite of something. Darkness is the antithesis of light. Truth is the antithesis of falsehood or lies. It's the opposite of something. And and the church exists in this world over against this world. The church exists and Christians exist with a different set of values. You either believe there is a God or you don't believe there is a God. You believe there is only one true God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ or the antithesis is you don't believe that. And ultimately, there are only two places to stand in this world. We may stand either in Christ or antithetically outside of Christ. That is the way it is. And if we lose sight of that fact, we place ourselves in in grave spiritual danger And indeed, if we lose sight of that fact, we may end up in very serious spiritual trouble. And that indeed is the kind of tension that the Christian lives with. On the one hand, we may say, and rightly so, this is our Father's world. Abram Kuyper's famous line about there's not one square inch of this world that the the Lord does not say, rightly so, this is mine. 
and certainly that's true. But on the other hand, this world is infected and dominated by sin. And we struggle against sin, the devil and his whole dominion. And there is a great deal of evil present in this world. You know, when Christ was tempted after being baptized in the Jordan River, when Christ was led out into the wilderness and he encounters Satan and Satan takes him up to a high mountain. He says, look, if you bow down to me, I will give you all of these kingdoms, all of the cities of this world. Well, Satan was not blowing smoke there. That was not an idle promise. Because when we look around, we see that there is indeed a great influence exercised by evil and the devil in this world. And so the Christian must always be on guard and maintain that tension because this world is no friend to grace. We have to, on the one hand, thank God for this wonderful world and say, this is my father's world, but we, we must also recognize the serious consequences of embracing everything in this world indiscriminately. There are three instances where we see this antithesis very clearly in the book of Daniel. We see it initially when Daniel and his three friends are taken into the court of Nebuchadnezzar, taken into the royal court, and they are going to give a royal, be, be given a, a, a Ivy League, as it were, education there in the royal court. They are promised that if they behave themselves and they do well in school, they will get uh, high-ranking positions in the kingdom. But there's a hitch. Daniel and his three friends must eat at the king's table, and they must eat the king's food. And that food is against, is not kosher. It violates the dietary laws of God's covenant people at that time. And so the, they say, look, we're not, we're not going to eat the king's food. And give us a chance to to justify ourselves and look at us after a couple of weeks and if we don't look healthier than all the other students who are eating the king's food, well then, then you may deal with us as you please. So, so they, at the risk of losing their position, losing their scholarship, say, we're not going to eat the king's food. That's the first instance. The second instance is what we see in Daniel chapter 3, where all of the royal governors and satraps and magistrates and all of the royal officials from the various providences are summoned to the plain of Dura. This was the plain, incidentally, where 
The Tower of Babel was once attempted to be built. They're summoned because King Nebuchadnezzar has set up an idol 90 feet high, an idol that's covered in gold. And he commands all these people to bow down to this idol. When the music plays, you are to bow down to this idol. And three men refuse to do this. Three men who are Daniel's friends. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stand openly there. As everyone else is bowing down, they refuse. In this huge throng of people, they refuse to bow down to this idol because they worship the one true God. And the third place incident where we see this antithesis is when Daniel, later on under the reign of Darius, when Daniel refuses to obey this decree that they may, he may not pray for the next 30 days. And he goes up to his room and he goes to the window facing Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. That's where his heart was. That was God's symbol among his people that he was dwelling with his people. That's where the Shechaniah cloud was facing Jerusalem. He prays as was his custom every day. And as a consequence of this disobedience of the king's decree, he's thrown into the lion's den. Basically, because he refuse, refuses to submit to idolatry. And we see very clearly illustrated the antithesis the separation between the church and God's people and the world. And now we are going to consider how that is reflected in this encounter that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. We notice, first of all, that there is a very interesting description in this chapter of how the world worships. The distinction, the clear distinction between the worship of the world and the worship of God's people. Secondly, we see that this worship of the world needs to be challenged by the truth. And that challenge comes from these three men, and it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and they make this challenge knowing that it is they are placing their lives in peril. And thirdly, we see that the truth of God 
will be victorious. We see that it will be recognized by the world. And we see that in this acknowledgement of Nebuchadnezzar's decree that was made at the end of the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's decree which acknowledges the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be the one true God. And last of all, we see in this a foreshadowing of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, then, we see a description of the worship of the world. And when we look at this passage, there are certain things that are repeated over and over again and, and that were integral to the worship itself. The first thing is the worship of the world is idolatrous. It's interesting in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment is kind of an exposition of the first commandment. You shall not make any graven images. See in Psalm 137, you know, uh, uh, people, people come to the, the people of Israel in Babylon and they say, sing us some songs, sing us some songs. They say, we can't sing you any songs because these songs are the songs of Zion. They are the songs for God. We're not here to entertain you. So the worship of the world needs two things. First of all, it needs an image. It needs an idol. It needs something to worship. Now you may think that's kind of kind of silly. I mean, we don't really have that kind of problem in our country, do we? But the fact of the matter is, idolatry is a prevailing, prevailing worship in the world in which we find ourselves. John Calvin said the human mind is an idol-making machine, and that's true. If you're not going to worship the creator, you will worship the creature. You will worship something that is fashioned by men's hands. Or you will worship power, or you will worship fame, or you will worship something else. You will worship uh, knowledge or wisdom or, or scholarship. But you will worship something. Bavink said, Bavink once made the observation, man is supernaturalistic to the core. Man is a worshiping creature. And so we see that the world needs images as something to set its sights on as an object of worship. But secondly, as I noted, the world needs music. Luther once observed that music is the handmaiden of theology. The world needs music. And the question is, what kind of music does the world subscribe to? 
Well, if you look, listen to the world's music, uh, we find that we find that it is also no friend to grace. You listen to some of the rap lyrics that maybe some of our children might be exposed to, and these lyrics are utterly godless, utterly godless, immoral godless. That's the world's music. That's the kind of worship music that you find among unbelievers. You can't sing those songs and claim to be a Christian. So the worship needs idols. The worship of the world needs idols, and the worship of the world needs music. You know, speaking of idols, some years ago, many years ago, we were in Hong Kong. And when you're in this city that's dominated by Buddhism, you know, you go to a Chinese restaurant now and you'll see a, you may see a statue of Buddha and you think, oh, well, not too much. You don't think too much of it. But when you're in Hong Kong, you see statues of Buddha in every store. If you have a store window, there will be a little corner and there will be a little statue of Buddha and in front of the statue there will be an orange or an apple or some kind of offering to this statue. These are people that are in the grip of idols, of idolatry. So the worship of the world needs idols and the worship of the world needs music. And we have to be careful too, people of God, that the world's music doesn't infect the church. Sometimes we see music that purports to be Christian music but does not reflect accurately the scriptural message. You know, uh, the Nicene Creed was written in response to the heresy that was pervasive at the time around 320 AD. Nicene Creed is the first creed of the Christian church. It was written in response to Arius. Now Arius was not a theologian. He was more of a musician and his songs were being sung uh, and the docks of, of the ancient world and his songs were spreading around and they were not reflecting what the Bible said. What the Bible said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in response to that and the spread of this false music, the Nicene Creed was produced by the church. And so we see that music must be biblical it must be worshipful in the sense that it is God-directed and it must be adopted by the church. So often we have music that, that is of questionable quality and has a shelf life of about six weeks. And it's produced by some publishing company that wants to make a, make a little money on it. 
but it's not Christian music. It doesn't reflect the scriptures. So we must be careful of the songs we listen to and the songs we sing. Indeed, as I noted before, Psalm 137. You want music just for entertainment? Well, music must be God-directed. The Babylonians came to the, the, uh, the captives in, in Babylon there from Jerusalem. They said, come on, sing us, some of, sing us some of the songs of Zion. And what's their response? You know, entertain us with that music. That's kind of interesting. What's the response of God's people? We're not here to entertain you with our music. Music is to be God-directed. And so they, hung the, they hang their harps on the willows and they say, how can we sing our songs, the songs of Zion, in a strange land when we are captive here just to entertain our captive enemies? The third thing a false religion needs is coercion. When Nebuchadnezzar put that statute up on the plain of Dura, what was the penalty for not bowing down? Well, if you don't bow down to that statue, you're going to get thrown into a fiery furnace. False religion needs coercion. One of the ways that Islam spread across Africa particularly North Africa, which was, was Christian. Uh, St. Augustine was from North Africa. Islam spread across Africa very swiftly. Why was that? Well, if you didn't acknowledge Muhammad and Allah, you were beheaded. Convert to Islam or be beheaded. That was their mission technique. And so it spread very quickly over Africa. And in some areas, it's still today. People are beheaded because they do not confess, because they confess the name of Christ. Whereas Christianity may speak of sin and, and, and the need for repentance, but it always focuses on God's grace. Come unto me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is persuasive. It talks about the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The fourth thing about a false religion is that it is concerned about outward appearances. False religion always wants to have the appearance of religiosity. But true religion is not a matter of outward appearance. True religion is a matter of the heart. You see, so often... So often we see religious leaders that are concerned about outward appearances, but they are not concerned about the condition of people's hearts. 
I had a minister friend that once made an observation that one of the most difficult aspects of his ministry was dealing with people who were outwardly good people, nice people, but inwardly there was a problem in their hearts. They didn't care about religion. They didn't care about the scriptures. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about repentance. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. And last of all, religion needs, false religion needs the appearance of power and not real power. You see, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had the appearance of power. I'm the king. I'm making this image. You bow down when the music plays, and if you don't, you're going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. It's the appearance of power. But the ones who had real power were were the ones who confessed that they would only worship the one true God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, people of God, this religion of the world needs to be challenged. And it needs to be challenged by the truth. It needs to be challenged by the truth of the gospel. And we see that these three men were willing willing to challenge this religion of the world, this religion of Nebuchadnezzar, and they did it openly and at great personal risk, but they did it. And so they are reported to Nebuchadnezzar, and he has them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, officials in the province of Babylon, the capital province, these men are, are magistrates. They are the upper crust of society in the capital province of the, uh, of the empire, of the Babylonian empire. All the nations were represented there. And there, right at the capital of the empire, were these three guys in the government who stood up and would not bow down to the, to the image. And they're taken and taken before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. Could help is hard to find. They were probably honest. They were capable. They were able people. He says, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you didn't bow down the first time. We'll give you a second chance. I'm showing you mercy. I'm trying to play ball with you. All you have to do is, when the music plays again, I'll give you a second chance, bow down. And their response is delightful. You see the poise and the confidence of faith, the response of the godly. They say, King, understand something. Number one, We're not going to bow down. Don't bother, waste your time playing the music again. We're not going to bow down. And number two, our God is able to rescue us. 
He is the one true God. He is able to rescue us. And even if he doesn't rescue us at this time, he is able. There's the quiet confidence of faith that challenges, that, that challenges the authority of the king. No one ever talked to an emperor like that. Nebuchadnezzar was an oriental monarch. He had, he had the power, to, power of life and death in his hands. I mean, look at in the book of Esther, you know, if the king didn't wave his scepter at, at a guest that was walking, in, walking into the throne room, if he, he didn't wave it, they'd take him out and kill him. No questions asked. No questions. And so it was with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Here are these men talk back to the king, but truth is on their side. And they say, King, you better understand that our God is able to deliver us no matter what happens. And he heats the fire up seven times hotter, and he has some soldiers, and they, they throw the men tied up into the fiery furnace. Falsehood, the world's false religions, needs to be challenged by the truth of God's word. But thirdly, God does deliver his people. And it would take something of a miracle like that to convince Nebuchadnezzar. And he looks into the fiery furnace and sees four men walking around. And he calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they come out, and their clothes doesn't even smell like fire. Their clothes is not even singed. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, who's utterly shocked, who's utterly amazed. And then he makes this decree. This decree that says, in effect, if you disparage the God, if you disparage the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that, that decree goes over the entire province of, uh, of the, uh, the entire provinces of the empire, and, and he says, surely your God is the God of gods, the king of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you were this, this was to Daniel, he said this. And then, and then at, the, at the end of chapter 3, again this decree. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut in pieces, their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. No one is to disparage the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because no other God can save. And that is true, isn't it, people of God? Because when we look at this passage, we see in a a dim way a foreshadowing of the work of him who is able to save. Who was that fourth figure in the fiery furnace? Some say it was a pre-incarnation figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. What 
whoever it was, it was God's way of protecting his people. And that foreshadows the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who the one who was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead and buried, who faced an eternity of hell, the fires of hell on the cross was forsaken by God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up to a fiery furnace. They knew they would be thrown in. They knew that was their fate. They knew that was what would happen to them. And they did it because they served God, because they worshiped the one true God. Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat drops of blood because he knew he would face the agonies of hell itself for the sins of his people. He sweat drops of blood and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And because he did that, we may look to him and know that in him we may find salvation, that he is the one who is the deliverer of his people. You know, the songwriter wrote, when through, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. You know, the world's religion is full of threats. The world's religion is full of sometimes sadness. The worship of the world is without comfort, without hope, without eternal security, without true joy. But the worship of God, the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is with comfort, is with hope, is with eternal security, is with absolute assurance. And that we may face the future with confidence, with hope, in the assurance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. O king, come what may, our God will deliver us. He will. May that comfort and that assurance and that hope be each of us, be ours tonight and in the week ahead. Amen. O oh Lord our God, we give thanks for the comfort of your word, for the knowledge that you are a God that 
delivered your people in times of trouble, that you are a God that preserved your church through the centuries, that you are a God that continues to deliver your people day by day. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that that assurance that belonged to your servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by your grace may also be our assurance, so that we may know that whatever happens in our lives, it will be well that all things work to good, work toward the good of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us now, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen.